All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. All right, conservatives have been cheering lately saying that if you go woke, you go broke. Here's the problem. That actually hasn't been true technically, but it could be very soon and we're going to explain why and it might not be the explanation you were expecting. All of that coming up on this episode. I think you all will be very interested in this discussion today, and thank you for joining us. If you haven't already, go to the description of this podcast. Join us on Volley. We'd love to chat about this with you after the show. So I had someone remind me that I have not done introductions the last few episodes. So I'm going to go and do that again. As always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a reasonably okay guy. With us is my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees. Hello, everyone. We have our resident historian and political prognosticator, Christian Hines. Hello. And then, of course, our producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking, which is going to be pretty important for this episode. It is. Thank you, Nick. I got a question. Oh, do you? Can you explain for me and the audience yeah. what ESG is? Gosh, I'm so glad you asked since it's like right in the title of the episode. All right. So wow, that definitely wasn't a planted question. <laughs> what are you talking about? That was purely random. How dare you? All right. So we got our first article here, and I, and I brought this up. It's from Foundation for Economic Education, which, by the way, I think is a great organization. Um, and, and they talk about the, the rise and reign of ESG. So what ESG stands for is environmental, social, and corporate governance. So the way to think about this is you have these large investment firms, sometimes you could have governments or whatnot, and they essentially set up a scoring system based off of a company's disposition or, or a company's like internal plan or their, their production methods or the way that they treat their employees, all this other stuff. And it falls into those three categories. You have an environmental score, a social score, your corporate governance score, and this equals your ESG score. And if you have a favorable ESG score, that means you go into like a prime list for investment. And if you have a bad ESG score, you go further down the list or you can essentially be banned from like these certain organizations which provide investment. And, and I'll just kind of go through this real quick because this gives a little bit of background. I will go into it some even more. But uh, this is directly from the argument or excuse me, from the article from Foundation for Economic Education, today's dominant strain of stakeholder capitalism, and stakeholder capitalism is very associated with like the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, et cetera, is the doctrine known as ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social, and Corporate Governance. The label was coined in 2004 report of Who Cares Wins, a joint initi initiative of elite financial institutions invented by the United Nations to develop guidelines and recommendations on how to better integrate environmental, social, and corporate governance issues in asset management, securities, brokerage services, and associated research 
functions. Okay, so in order to understand where like the modern ESG is coming from, right, it is heavily influenced and, and in some ways created by the United Nations in conjunction with certain investment firms and organizations like the World Economic Forum, which is kind of a, a conglomeration of investment banks, of, of you know, um, you know, billionaires and, and politicians okay. and stuff like that. They've been all pushing that. But here's what's important. We kind of go to, we got to go beyond that to understand like the philosophy that laid this groundwork, because a lot of people look at ESG and like this showed up out of nowhere. This is actually, I would argue about 120 years in the making. Okay. So let's go to our next article also from foundation for economic education. And what they talk about, scroll up here a little bit. I want to talk about this first part. This is really important. They said, First thing to understand, in the progressive view, neither the old aristocracy nor liberal democracy were equipped to achieve the necessary goals of society. This is important to understand because we we, we constantly hear this drumbeat from the left about democracy, democracy, yeah. democracy. But, but if you actually look at the early days of the progressive movement and you talk to guys like Herbert Crowley, John Dewey, uh, Woodrow Wilson was, was really big on this. Woodrow Wilson thought that the Constitution was antiquated, it was outdated, it was problematic. He also thought that, you know, Democracy, I mean, he, he talked about making the world safe for democracy, but if you look at what he tried to do, he's the first one to really set up a huge administrative state within the okay. government. Wow. And he, and he talked about this a little bit when he was teaching at Princeton and whatnot. He was a big believer that what, in order to have good governments, in order to properly organize and run society, you didn't need these antiquated documents like the Constitution. What you really needed was experts so why didn't they fear the centralization of power? Because they were controlling it. Okay. <laughs> like the whole idea was that they it's they weren't coming out and saying we need to totally get rid of democracy. What they wanted to do was insulate certain levers of power from democratic processes. Now, if if you if you think about this, um, we used to have what they called the spoil system within okay. the United States government. So a new president would get elected. Now remember the federal government was a lot lower at this time in the 1800s, but a new president would get elected fire everybody, right? And then put all of his buddies and, and campaign you know, contributors, yeah. put them in positions of power and influence within the government, right? So the reason why they called it the spoils system is like to the victor go the spoils. Well, the spoils for running for office was you got to pick who was running all the different agencies. Now, in the 1800s, you didn't have a whole lot of agencies to run, yeah. right? Um, but Woodrow Wilson believed that the government needed to play a much more active role. And again, he's, he's considered one of the first progressive presidents and left-wing progressive presidents. And he, he said, we need a much larger administrative state to, you know, really set a vision for the country and, and, you know, develop everything from like education to infrastructure to corporate governance and all this. And the way we were going to do this is that we were going to put uh, these experts in charge of all these positions. And there had been a movement earlier on, even before Will Wilson to say, look, you know, we, we can't completely change the composition of these, you know, agencies every time there's a new president. And, and to most of us, that seems to make sense, right? We, we wouldn't like the idea of every time the president changes over, everyone working at the post office is fired and replaced with his buddies or her buddies, right? So they tried to set up this process where it's like, okay, these are civil service jobs and they don't exist or, or their, their composition doesn't exist at the pleasure of the presidency. The idea was for them to be apolitical as yes. well. Is that correct? Yes. But we all know that's impossible. Well, we, we all know that to some degree it's been very difficult to maintain. And we're starting – we did a previous episode on some of the problems that we're seeing with the FBI 
where we have positions within the FBI. Like, obviously, the president gets to recommend who the director will be, and right. then, you know, Senate confirms these positions and things like that. But there's all these other positions that are essentially in, in very, you know, powerful positions with respect to setting policy. And this has led a lot of people to refer to, like, the deep state. And what they're really referring to is the administrative state. Because think about it. If I come in and I'm the president and I say this is my agenda, this is how I want to carry things out, and I'm within purely within my constitutional power to set that agenda, but I've got a bunch of mid and even high-level staffers that fall within the civil servant as opposed to, like, the appointed positions, and they slow roll my entire agenda, they can, they can wait me out for yeah. four years. There's, they can absolutely do that or they can refuse to actually do the job. Now, again, I can't fire them. So we, we create a different problem. Essentially we traded one problem, which was the spoil system for another problem. And the reason why all this is relevant to this conversation is because this started the move and you said, and, and what happened was, is initially the idea was we're going to have this massive administrative state and it's going to be run by these apolitical people that are not trying to run things based off of, you know, various moral theories. They're just using science, <laughs> right? That's all, that's all they're doing. They're just using science and what actually works, right? Hardcore, you know, objective analysis. Well, you had guys like Dwight Waldo at Syracuse University that essentially recognized that nobody works that way. Everybody brings a value system into their analysis. And you can adjust for bias to a certain degree, but people still have long-term objectives for what they think is an ideal outcome, and that influences the policies that they put into place. So Dwight Waldo and these other guys were essentially decided that Expertly implementing democratically chosen policies was no longer enough. A subsequent generation of experts would be expected to substitute their own ethical and philosophical standards for those supported by voters. Scroll down. Public servants should become active, informed, politically savvy agents of change, as one of Waldo's colleagues would later put it. So you've created this system now. You've created this idea, this mentality, that the real way that you run society is not necessarily through elections. We're still going to have those, right? But it's through this larger administrative state. And the reason why this is relevant to this conversation with respect to ESGs is because you have people within business, within the World Economic Forum, and they're operating in a very similar fashion. They're just doing it technically in the private sector, but they're doing it as an extension of this same mentality. And I was actually right about to ask you, I think that you've just done a great job hinting at why central planning is is inevitably going to become a failure because you can't really substitute the will of 330 Americans for or 330 million Americans for a handful of unelected bureaucrats and expect that they're going to deliver something better than what those 330 million Americans would have wanted for themselves mm -hmm. but the the question that I was going to ask and that you were uh, just hinting at is so so what does this have to do with ESG like, like we, we've kind of explained the failures of central planning in a, in a nutshell sense, but what does this have to do with BlackRock, you know, pushing wokeism through, you know, their $8.5 trillion worth of assets under management? Well, and, and I think, and I think that's an important question for like, okay, so how does ESG work essentially? Yeah. So if you can get your mind around this idea, this, this philosophy that what society really needs, especially a complex society, right? Because they're always arguing, oh, society's so complex. We can't leave it open to like just free markets. We need wise people at the helm that are going to direct what takes place. Now, for people like Woodrow Wilson, that was a, a government function. But you have other people within the private sector, ostensibly in some degree, that have said, we also believe this, but we're going to run it through 
asset management and investment. And that's where you get guys like BlackRock coming in. So to give you an idea, I'm going to give you a little background. This is the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Larry Fink, it says, Larry Fink can't catch a break. He's chairman and CEO of BlackRock, the largest investment manager in the world with $8.5 trillion of assets under management. Right, and he's in the battle over sustainable investing and the spread of environmental, social, and governance policies across Wall Street. Both sides are gunning for him. So here's what's interesting. There's a lot of people on the left that don't like BlackRock because they just think they're too big and powerful. But there's a lot of people on the right that don't like them because they've totally bought into this narrative of ESG governance. And both sides are skeptical of them, and both sides should be. So the whole idea of how does this work? Well, imagine a guy like Larry Fink, right? He's he's the head of BlackRock, the mm-hmm. CEO of BlackRock, and they have $8.5 trillion in ma- of assets under management. So what that means is it's not that they have $8.5 trillion in the bank. They're right? not worth $8.5 trillion. Yeah, they're trillion. not worth $8.5 trillion. What it is is because they they uh, manage investments, you know, $8.5 trillion, people that own that money have trusted BlackRock to invest it. Could and be the property, value. retirement account. A yes. lot of it's property. The, a ton it's, of it's, it's property. It's the value. I, I really want to drive this home. There can, hence the phrase assets under management. Yeah. It's the value of all of the money. Uh, all Everybody that, that has invested anything into BlackRock, when you take all of that money combined, it's $8.5 trillion, which yeah. is a, to give you an idea of how much that is, I think it was like when Lehman Brothers collapsed in 2008, I'm pretty sure that they had something like $600 billion. Yeah. And they've got $8.5 trillion. Wow. Credit Suisse, the um, uh, second largest bank in Switzerland that is potentially on the brink of collapse, has like $1.5 trillion assets under management. So yeah. this is a giant, giant number. <laughs> well, well, to, to give you an idea, $8.5 trillion is is roughly one-third of the entire U.S. economy every year. And that's uh, because the U.S. economy is about $24.88 trillion, uh, largest economy in the world. So, you know, BlackRock has more money and under uh, under management than most countries in the world have in their yearly economy. So th- this is huge. They are hugely influential. Now, what this means is, is that how do they decide how they're going to manage somebody else's money? How do they decide where they're going to invest it? ESG scores. They're, they're huge on this. So if you don't have a good ESG score, BlackRock will say you're not eligible for any of the money that we that we're managing to go into your business. Well, when you're when you're talking about somebody that's managing assets that equals out to almost one third of the largest economy in the world, that is a huge motivator for companies. Like I have sat down and talked to CEOs who are hardcore free market, liberty loving CEOs. And they'll be telling you like, oh, we definitely are going through the ESG process because you have to, because it's not just BlackRock doing this. Bank of America is pushing this. And, and their whole argument has been, well, we're, we're not just doing this. This is part of shareholder capitalism, right? This is good for our clients in the long run. Can you define shareholder capitalism? Again, again it's, it's shareholder capitalism is the kind. So, excuse me, um, stakeholder capitalism. Stakeholder, okay. So shareholder capitalism was is what we've always thought of as capitalism. That is, if I invest in the company, I'm a shareholder. And so you have a fiduciary duty to do the best job possible in order to make sure that I get a return on my investment because you don't exist without my investment. Right. Stakeholder capitalism says, well, we're not only going to count the, you know, the owners of the company or the shareholders, we're going to count everybody that's potentially affected by it. Well, what's shady about that 
is that theoretically in a cosmic sense, you can make an argument how everybody's affected by everything. And what it does is that gives them the ability to start to engage in investment and lobbying and political mach- uh, machinations and everything else because, oh, these, this is a stakeholder. Mm-hmm. Now, again, the way they advertise this is this company is set up right here. Well, the shareholders are concerned about that company, but, but what about all the people that live in the proximity? Okay, well, why does living in the proximity of the company all of a sudden mean that the company should take your opinion into sure. consideration? Right, companies should be concerned about what their customers think and what the shareholders think. They're concerned about what the customers think because the customers give them the money to pay back the shareholders. Yeah, and to run the business, they should care about what the shareholders think because the shareholders are giving them the investment to set up the company in the first place. But when you start saying, "No, no, no," you've got to care about all these other people because they are potentially impacted by that's the whole idea of stakeholder capitalism, and it's and it's how they. They use that to justify it because most people will look at that and say, well, yeah, you know, you should be concerned about the community that the business is in. And, and obviously, if you're doing something that affects the groundwater and, and yeah, there's there's a reasonable there's certainly a reasonable application of this where we can say if you're doing something that has a direct effect on somebody else, that should be taken into consideration. Sure. But this idea that you have to engage in all of these environmental policies and social policies because, you know, this person over here is affected because BlackRock says so. So are companies uh, like BlackRock actively investing money? How are they investing money to promote ESG standards? Well, the biggest way that they do it is they come up with an ESG standard. And and again, this whole idea that this is all private sector. Who started the ESG standards? It was the United Nations. That's not private sector, Mm -hmm. right? They're, They're watching the way that the governments are pushing some of this stuff. And so what they're doing is they're getting ahead of it and they're saying, we're going to set up ESG standards. Well, now, now this is not to say that BlackRock doesn't invest in all these different funds and the, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates. Right. But they don't have to do any of that to promote ESG. If you need my money or if I'm one of the primary sources that you're going to go to in order to get investment for your business, and I can say you don't even qualify unless you have these ESG standards, I'm now promoting ESG and I... I didn't have to invest in some. You didn't have to spend any money. I didn't have to lobby. I didn't have to invest in the Green New Deal, you know, legislation. I have to do any of that. I can just cut you off from capital unless you do what I want. And and in this case, what I'm doing is I'm requiring you to do things that have nothing to do with the effective or efficient running of your business. Could you break down the the different aspects to ESG? So environmental policy largely has to do with things like sustainable growth, being carbon neutral. And this is, this is also part of the problem because some people will look at this and say, well, of course we don't like this because we don't agree with their policy positions. Now, the danger is, is that some conservatives could look at this and be like, oh, but I would love it if they required this, this, and this. Right. So the, the free market approach, shareholder capitalism, is based off of you provide a good or a service within the free market. And the, and the obligation, the first obligation of the company is to make sure that they're taking care of their shareholders because they're the ones that made the enterprise possible. Mm-hmm. Now, if they engage in pollution, if they engage in other things, that's that's what we call an external, um, uh, th- th- there's an external element there that has to be accounted for, right? Externalities. So we're not, we're not ignoring those things. We're just saying that the company should focus on providing the product or service that you know, the shareholders invested in, yeah. in order to turn a profit, because that is going to result in people getting goods and services they want. It's going to result in employing people. It's going to result in a lot of positive things. But the environmental come in and say, okay, BlackRock has not just said, hey, we want you to be environmentally friendly. BlackRock is deciding what environmental friendly looks like. 
That's and they're, dangerous. And it's they're not just the environment yeah. stuff. Uh, I mean, what about the social? Well, oh guns, God, you're, guns. you're DEI. All right, diversity, um, diversity, um, equity, and equity inclusion. and inclusion. So now, if you don't, if the composition of your hiring practice doesn't look the way BlackRock thinks it would, they'll deny you investment. What about governance? Okay, well, let's say that you run your company in a traditional sense where the owner is the one that owns the company and he pays his employees or her employees, whatever they agree to work for. No, no, no. They've decided they want you to set up your governance this way. And you better have the appropriate DEI, you know, again, division, equity, and inclusion policies in place or you don't get investment. And, and again, the left will come in and when they argue for this, they'll say, what, so you want you want them to invest in companies that are destroying the environment. You want them to invest in racist companies. You want them to invest in companies that don't take care of their employees. Well, no, of course we don't want that. But I also don't want you being the arbiter of what that all includes. So if, if you're basically saying we're going to use CRT to influence the way that we look at diversity, equity, and inclusion, and if you don't use CRT in order to, to determine that for the composition of your workforce or the way that you promote, then we're going to cut you off from yeah. investment. That's a very different thing than saying, I don't want to invest in racist companies. Yeah. But that's how they get away with making these arguments to a broader audience. And especially to a younger audience that can be easily convinced that, well, yeah, I don't want my money going into a company that is poisoning the water. Guns are another one. I mean, I'm looking right at, uh, you know, what can ESG conscious investors um, what can they do about guns? And basically anything weapons related would be disqualified, basically. Yeah. Well, and, and the important thing to understand is is a lot of people look at this and say, okay, well, I don't like what BlackRock's doing, but I don't I don't give my money to BlackRock. Go to the next article. <laughs> and this is where we go into the broader, um, you know, when it comes to, to mutual funds, um, yeah, other one. When it comes to mutual funds, it goes, you may, this is uh, from spectator.org. You may not know it, but these investment companies are in many cases focusing your money on political causes with which you disagree. For instance, if you disagree with any of the three prongs, prongs of ESG, environmental, social governance, you may be surprised to learn that your mutual fund supports them. Yep. Now, again, why does your mutual fund support them? Well, you got to understand within the exchange markets and with the investment markets, you know, BlackRock still has a lot of influence. Bank of America still has a lot of influence yeah. on this. So these companies that make up part of your portfolio are still looking for these other asset managers or for these other people to provide investment to them. And again, you, you may look at, well, no, no, I'm investing in this mutual fund. It has nothing to do with BlackRock. Well, if the company within your mutual fund is relying on BlackRock in order to get investment and they have to do ESG protocols, then yeah, you are. If you're in the S investing in the S&P 500, you're investing in a company that's abiding by ESG. Yeah. Again, I, I have talked to companies that are going through the process. They're, they're private right now. They, they've reached a, a level of, um, you know, within the market where they want to go public. They want to do the initial public offering. And they will all tell you, we have to get our ESG in, in order in order to be able to do that. Uh, because if we don't, we won't get the money from, you know, these large investment uh, management funds. And, and James James Lindsay, who we're, we're going to provide some information on this, um, he talks about this a, a lot as well. In fact, he had a really interesting take on a podcast that he did with Jack Posobiec. And what he was saying, and this is, this is going to blow some people's minds, what he was saying was there was actually a lot of, so that, real quick, let me back up. That explains how this is being pushed, right? And how pretty much all of us are essentially feeding into this, this pushing for the yeah. ESG because- Almost everywhere you spend your money, you've got a company that's that's engaged in ESG compliance because they want to be able to get the money from Bank of America or BlackRock or whoever else. 
when and we talked a little bit about how it, it got to this point. But if you want to, if you want to, you know, fast forward from like the early nineteen teens and twenties where the groundwork for this was being laid, and then, uh, but before we got into the official categorization of what ESG is, um, James Lindsay, who who is a avid opponent of ESGs. He, he basically thinks that what we're doing here is we're setting up the equivalent of a um, communist Chinese party social credit score. Oh, okay. Right. But for businesses, um, he said, he goes, actually, if you look at Occupy Wall Street, he goes, here's what was so interesting about that. A lot of the things that the people on Occupy Wall Street were protesting against or complaining about, he goes, they had very valid points. He goes, it's one of the things that turned off conservatives to Wall Street or to Occupy Wall Street is because it wasn't because they had valid points about centralized banking or, or some of the bigger problem with some of these corporations and how they're controlling and manipulating the market. It's because they thought the solution was, well, that's why we need more Marxism. <laughs> and we're, we're that's all what turned me off. Yeah. And, and I'm looking at this going, these guys are nuts. And and the crazy part was, is that. James Lindsay's theory is, is when you look at a lot of the investment that was coming from a lot of these investment and hedge fund managers and all that into things like CRT, he goes, it started around that time because they saw a mechanism for dividing people. And they also saw a way to improve their, to improve their portfolio with the left because the whole idea was is that, well, if we're investing in all these different things with respect to CRT, with respect to uh, green energy, with respect to the environmental movement, with respect to um, you know diversity, equity, inclusion, it improves our profile, um, and it actually addresses the concerns they're doing while leaving us in power. And, and here's the interesting part, because one of two things is going to happen at this point. You're either going to see a, and, and this, is, this is going to sound weird, but just bear with me. On one side, there's a left or a right approach to what happens. But one side is going to request a lot more government involvement within the economy as the solution to this. The left will go toward the more Marxist route. The right might go toward kind of a, a populist route. But both of them will essentially be, with, with both of them will essentially be asking for a leftist solution, which is more government power and hmm. control. Just different flavors of leftism. Right? Now, if you look at the other side of this, uh, and, and what's interesting is that the way that like BlackRock and Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum, the way have, they have responded to this is by essentially saying, okay, we're fine with more government power, but this is the role we want it to play. We want there to be a fusion of the government side with the economic side. And it's only going to be those companies which comply with these things that are allowed to continue to operate and have access to capital and everything else. And what am I, I describing wonder what right that now? Phrase, I think we've talked about I this think before. We have. What are we talking it's about? It's called right fascism. Oh, yes, it I is. don't mean that as a Winner. derogatory attack. I mean that as an actual dictionary definition of historical definition of this is the pro I, I've also said this before. Everything the left accuses the right of being or doing, they themselves yeah. are guilty of. Yeah. They call us fascists. But when you look at the economic platform of fascism, yeah. it's the left that, that are the actual economic fascists. This is this it, is a form this is a form of corporatism. It's the idea that the the private sector 
is going to work in conjunction with organizations like the UN. So you got the World Economic Forum and the UN. That's probably the two good. And they're essentially saying that, hey, we get where you're going with this. You want to push these environmental goals. You want to push these social goals. You want to push these governance goals. We're going to set up our investment portfolios in such a way to where they have to comply with these, not legally, but if they don't comply with them, we'll starve them of capital and we'll go out of business. And so you're, you're seeing this, this fusion between those two. And this falls almost exactly in line with fascist economic policy. And, and again, to Christian's point, we're not saying fascist policy with respect to the military or fascist policy with respect to social programs. We're saying that if you look at the way that fascism wants to organize the economy, they were huge on this idea of you could still own the company, you could still own the investment firms, but you had to do it in line with the general will of the people and the leader within the political realm gets to determine what the general will of the people is. And then they set up things like cartels to where, and, and cartels can be set up by industry. That's typically how it's set up, but you can also set it up based off of things like corporate credit or social credit scores or ESG compliance. So it's like, yes, Klaus Schwab. Yes. You know, um, BlackRock, you can, you can run your stuff the way you want, provided that you're doing it the way we want you to do it. Well, Nick, there have definitely been some very wealthy people speak out against this. But before you go tell us who those people are and what they've said, I, I think it's important for us to understand what argument the left is going to make in favor of VSG. And could you help us lay that out and what they're going to say? Yeah. So, so the argument goes a little bit something like this. And and if you're not if you're not careful to kind of understand and dissect where this is going, if you just take it at face value, they can actually make a really good argument. Because here's how it works. No, no, no. We, we want private companies to remain private. We don't want the government to control those companies. What we want is for companies to assume greater responsibility for their own actions and to understand the second and third order effects of all of their activities. And so all we're asking is we're saying that if a private company that manages these funds wants to encourage good behavior with respect to environmental policy, good behavior with respect to social policy, good behavior with respect to their governance and how they treat their employees and promote from within. Why wouldn't you let a private company have the power and freedom to be able to do all of those things? I mean, it, when you make, when you make the argument that way, it, it sounds plausible. That sounds plausible. Not to mention the fact that again, as a free market person, I'm not in the habit of telling a company what they have to do or not do. If you want to run your company in a way that I don't think makes any sense, I generally think you should be free to do that, provided you're not infringing on the rights and liberties of somebody else. What you need to understand about what's going on here is this is not as simple as a company, let's say like Starbucks, saying, hey, you know what? We're not going to say Christmas anymore because we don't think it jives with our overall customer base yeah. and, and it doesn't reflect our values as a company. I might not like that and I'm free to not go to Starbucks, but I don't think Starbucks should be punished by the government because of that. Right? Sure. I'm just going to make different economic decisions. Yeah. If you want to, if you, if a company wants to delve in to the, the cultural aspect, well then I'm going to adjust my purchasing behavior and my investment behavior based off of that. But what you have going on right now is a lot of companies that these are not just companies like working as free actors within the marketplace. These are companies that has cozied up to government for years, have attempted to manipulate the marketplace through regulations, through tax policy, through environmental policy. And then they set themselves up to benefit as a result of the tax regulatory wow. policy that goes into place. So they are directly trying to manipulate the law to put themselves in a better economic position. 
And then they can argue that to their shareholders, well, hey, we're just, um, you know, we're we're doing the right thing by the environment in order to push for this subsidy, which happens to be financing a company that we bought. And so, hey, we're, we're totally living up to our fiduciary duty to our investors. Yeah. Right. And then when they talk about risk management, risk management is no longer about, well, we, we need to, you know, look, if we're going to do this, it's going to require a large logistical footprint and we need to worry about the insurance. And, you know, gosh, if we're shipping through, you know, um, the Horn of Africa, we got to worry about piracy. And so we've got to look. That's not the risk management they're talking about. They're, they're creating their own risk by essentially saying that, well, look at all these people that are, you know, coming up and saying, we're not going to buy from, you know, Nike unless you support Colin Kaepernick, or we're not going to, we're not going to, you know, do, we're not going to shop with your company unless you donate to Black Lives Matter. Right. Right. So they're, they're creating their own problem, but then they're, they're then categorizing as risk when they encourage people to invest in these ESG programs. Sounds a lot like politicians. Well, you, you know what else? The one of the the biggest arguments that I've heard in favor of all of this is a similar argument that I've heard conservatives make before. It's just private corporations. Yeah, it's not it's not the government. You 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 hear this all the time. I, I remember when Twitter banned Trump and banned a bunch of other conservatives. By the way, including James Lindsay, who we mentioned earlier. Yeah, that's right. They banned him about a month ago. Um, Funny story about that. The the argument that I've heard over and over again is, well, it's a private corporation. They should have the right to do whatever they want. Yeah. And so, therefore, BlackRock, they're a private corporation. They should be able to decide where they're going to be investing their money. They've got $8.5 in assets under management. They get to choose yeah. how they're going to allocate that money. Who are you to tell them not to? Yeah. It's the same. But but the irony is, is that the second that Twitter reverses course or opens itself back up out of you know, potential for somebody like Musk to buy them out yeah. or any other sort of criticism yeah. with the emergence of, of competing social media sites to try to pull users from them. And then suddenly Twitter reverses course or any other company reverses course. And then the left just hammers them oh, yeah. and says, you're enabling racists or you're yeah. enabling homophobes. You need to be regulated or shut down yes. or prosecuted or investigated. So it, it they, they kind of, they reveal what they really want which is to say that, it, again, they try to use our argument against us. They're a private company. Let them do what they want. Isn't that your philosophy? But right. the moment that private company does something they don't like, they immediately want regulation or the government to crack down on Because that's what they actually really want. That's what they really want. But, mm -hmm. th but the other issue here, th this is the part where conservatives need to be careful. Because if our solution is going to be, well, we want the government to crack down when they're doing things that we don't like, you're, you're now adopting the left's tactic for controlling the economy in the hopes that it will produce the results you want. The problem is, is that you can talk all day long about fighting fire with fire, but at the end of the day, they're, they're still getting what they want Yeah, because they'll, they'll eventually take over the system that you're now, you've now propped up to achieve the end state that you want. And that, that really, that really kind of leaves the larger question of, well, okay, well then how do you address this? So Nick, there've been some, very wealthy people push back against these ESG scores, but I, I want to know who those people are, but I also want to know, how do we stop this? Well, so the, the first thing is, is that there have been some people speaking out, but just keep in mind, th this is another one of those myths that, oh, all these big corporate fat cats are Republican. No, they're not. Almost all of the big corporate fat cats are Democrats. They're Democrat donors. And what's amazing is they're all big on these ESG scores until they're doing business in China. And then all of a sudden, it's like, ah, never mind, right? So to, to some degree, they're looking at this within the marketplace, within the United States, within the West, of, of feeling like they have to do this. And then China has its own social credit score that they have to uh, appeal to over there. 
So we do have some people, we do have some prominent people that have pushed back. Probably the most prominent has been Warren Buffett. And, and that's interesting because Warren Buffett is not a conservative. Uh, but Warren Buffett's also not an idiot. And, and he wrote this article. In fact, we got another uh, story up here. He goes, um, it, here's, what, here's what Buffett said. He goes, given this complexity, firms should adhere to Buffett's advice, featured within the Financial Times on why companies cannot be moral arbiters, and heed his view of ESG spending as being a contestable use of the shareholders' money. So That's interesting. This is the main pushback between shareholder capitalism and stakeholder capitalism because the, the number of stakeholders that you can potentially have is, is kind of like without end. And a stakeholder doesn't have to have any sort of investment in the success or even existence of the company to be considered. And when you start giving stakeholders more consideration than you do your shareholders, that's problematic because you're not using the stakeholders money. You're not using the stakeholders like investments or labor or anything else. You are using the shareholders. And what's, what's interesting is that a stakeholder is just a stakeholder. A shareholder is both a shareholder and a and stakeholder, a stakeholder. Yep. but they're being treated as if they're the same by this whole process. To, to simplify in, that. In some respects. It, to use the Thomas Sowell quote again, you are putting decision-making you know, processes in the hands of those who literally will pay no price for being wrong. Because if you're not a shareholder and your ESG strategy blows up in your face and your company goes bankrupt, well... If you're the stakeholder, you don't own any shares of the corporation. You don't. You, you're not going to lose any money. You're going to get your policies implemented, yeah. but you're not going to suffer any of the potential losses yeah, that come about point. from it. But if you're a shareholder, you could lose everything yeah. if the yeah. company goes under. Which well, is why, but this gets to your point, Nick, about how Buffett might not be conservative. There's plenty of things that he's called for before yeah. that aren't conservative. But he he understands how markets work, and he understands that if you take the decision making process out of the hands of the people that actually risk losing it all, suddenly the decisions that will be made might not be in the benefit of those who actually risk losing it all. And therefore companies might end up making decisions that won't just hurt themselves. It'll hurt the consumers that they're yeah. serving eventually. Mm -hmm. Because if, if Walmart doesn't exist anymore, the people that go buy from Walmart, well, they're worse off for it. Not just the shareholders, it's the consumers as well. Those are the two people that matter, not the stakeholders. It's well, the people buying the products and the people that own the shares of the company that's providing the products. Well, and a perfect example of this, and this is where this whole, you know, go woke, go broke, because people would point to like Coca-Cola and, and like losing profits. With Nike. They, they point to Disney, right? So Disney, Disney was the perfect yeah. example because... Um, first of all, a lot of people, a lot of conservatives canceled their Disney Plus. A lot of conservatives changed their family vacation plans. And then, of course, the state of Florida said, fine, you want to push all these policies? Well, then you don't need all these tax credits you've yeah. been given. Now, you, you could look at that as being somewhat problematic. Now, again, I don't think companies should be getting all these you know, tax credits to do stuff. I think we should just have a low tax rate, expand the base, and that's it. But um, the idea was is that, okay, if you want to well, weigh in to politics – well, then politics is going to weigh back. And, and Disney found out that, holy crap, we just lost a ton of money. Now, people asked, why doesn't that cause Disney to change what they do? Okay, to some degree it has, but I think most people are recognizing largely that they haven't. And here's the reason why. Disney can look at their um, you know, millions of customers, but they also got to consider like organizations like BlackRock and Bank of America and everyone else. And so it's the idea of, they can get your money one of three ways. 
They can get your money by appealing to you as a customer to buy their product. They can get to your money now by appealing to the people that manage the funds that your retirement funds are in. Or they can get your money by going to the government and saying, we want subsidies and tax breaks for what we're doing. Well, in order to get your money in these two ways, they've got to appeal to BlackRock or they've got to appeal to, you know, a governor or, or a, you know, maybe, you know, 50 or 60 politicians. In order to get your money through the free market, they've got to appeal to every single customer. So they, they've made a calculated strategy here where we're going to appeal to the people that are controlling 8.5 trillion in assets and we're going to appeal to the government, which can take your money and give it to us, whether you like it or not. And, and I understand why they're doing it. It's just, I think it's horribly immoral. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, we, it's one of the reasons why so many of us can look at what like the Occupy Wall Street movement was complaining about and saying, yeah, we agree that there's a lot of problems right here, but your solution of we're going to give politicians more power over this is going to make it worse, not better. And, and we're, we've seen this across the board now. We, we want businesses to be oriented in such a way as to have to appeal to customers and their shareholders. The shareholders give them the money, the initial capital that they need to operate in order to appeal to the customers, which then create the profit in order to pay the shareholders. And, and people, oh, shareholders and profit. I got news for you, Hoss. The shoes you're wearing, the phone you're using, the clothes you're wearing, the car you're driving, the job you work at, the house you live in, all of that was created by the profit motive within the marketplace. And, and if you think the whole ESG altruistic method is a better one, okay, go to one, let's go look at one of the countries that has said we're gonna have we're gonna have politicians, altruistic you know, kind-hearted politicians deciding what housing looks like and what food, you know, production looks like and what clothing production looks like. And here's what you're going to find. Poverty. You're going to find poverty and you're also going to find pretty oppressive regimes because the moment you say, wait a second, this produced a bunch of poverty, they're going to be like, why are you an enemy of the state? <laughs> why do you, uh, you, that sounds like capitalist talk to me. I mean, that's the craziest thing about all of this, right? If you want to be a communist in a free country, like the United States, you can be, you can get a bunch of friends together. You can open up a commune. I won't stop you. I'll even try to fight to raise, lower your taxes. But if you want to be a capitalist in a communist country, or you want to be a capitalist in a country with a centrally planned government. Yeah. They've got a gulag for you. No, it's called Hong Kong. Yeah. And but but not to get we too, need a why minute about yeah, yeah, that. Not actually. to get too not to get too far away. But this this is the whole point here right now is that guys like Warren Buffett, who again is no friend to conservatism, at least understands that at the end of the day, what you're doing is you're setting up this perverse incentive within the marketplace where now your your customers and your shareholders are your third consideration after these investment managers or politicians that are telling you, we want you to prioritize this. And, and you're saying, okay, the thing you're asking me to prioritize doesn't actually help me do a better job taking care of my customers or my shareholders. And like, we don't care. You either do it because we invest in you to do it, or you'll do it because we'll punish you if you won't. So there's, there's two, uh, Hamilton asked a second question. There's actually two points that are worth bringing up when it comes to how do you stop it? One is, well, you're seeing a lot of red states that are starting to push back against yeah. this. Um, I know that it was like, I think it was Arkansas that was the latest one that basically said no bank that does any sort of ESG related stuff targeting things like, you know, the oil and gas industry yeah. is allowed to do any sort of banking with any local or, or state government yeah. in in our state borders. And you're seeing more and more red states do yeah. that. They're saying, okay, you want to you push woke capital? We will not, as yeah. a state... 
we will not have our taxpayer dollars be used to subsidize your corporation. Yeah. That's the first component. The other component is the market side itself will eventually punish this. Yes. And there's two reasons why. Either the ISG people will get their way and you will end up seeing more and more corporations go the same route that Alibaba went, uh-huh. where you have these stakeholders, in this case, the Communist Party of China, that <laughs> dictates what the company does and yeah. has driven the company into the dirt. You can just look at Alibaba's share price as proof of that. Yeah. They, they can't go anywhere because it's no longer the company or the shareholders that's dictating what happens. Yep. It's this outside third party that's doing yeah. it. And lo and behold, they're not doing a great job at it. Yeah, it's government central planners. Yes, it's central planners, either through the government or still, again, you can have central planning in the private marketplace. Yeah. Central planning does not work. It's as simple as that. There's another component of this, though. The reason that Warren Buffett wrote all of this stuff is because, again, he's not, as you said, he's not a conservative, but he's also not an idiot. Yeah. And he understands that when you change the motivations of the marketplace, you can end up getting some very disastrous results. And there's no better example of this than the quantitative easing that we've seen over the last 14 years. This is Okay, this is the part where, listen, if you've started to zone out while you're driving in your car, pay attention because we're about to talk we're about to this talk about something that very few people are talking about right now. And this is one of the, this is interesting because everyone will say, well, we need companies to fight back. We need the government to fight back. We need state governments to fight back. We need investors to fight back. Okay, fine, good. I, I, I don't got a problem with some or even most of that. But a lot of people are like, well, how the, what am I supposed to do? What mutual fund can I go to? That Sit back and watch the fireworks. That's watch what, what is to about to happen because the only way they have gotten away with this garbage for so long is because of the monetary policy of almost every single West, or actually almost every single central bank in the in the world. In the West, certainly. In the West, certainly, but I would argue almost the Potentially, world. Potentially, yeah, yeah, but basically probably the, the world. world. Yeah, everybody. I don't know what the central bank of the you know of of, of Chad is doing right but, now. But, but, but <laughs> if you look at it, central banks in everywhere from Zimbabwe to China to Europe to the United States to all of them have Canada, had this, Britain. All of them have had this cheap money policy where we're going to keep interest rates down to like zero, which makes government borrowing of money for government spending to go way up and we're going to just going to print more money and throw it out of the market. Well, when, when the federal reserve authorizes the treasury to, when the treasury prints all this money that the federal reserve goes on their, on their books, does the federal reserve then cut you a check as an individual? No, it goes to certain banking elements. It goes to bank of America yeah, and it eventually goes to, goes Black to BlackRock, Rock, right? Yes. It goes to these people. And so all this money that's been printed, that's causing all the prices of, of your groceries to go up, Right. The, the people that get the initial benefit of that money when it's first printed is not like you getting a check in the mail. It's these major banks that have this connection and relationship with the Federal Reserve. And so they've been able to just spend all of this money at a point where, because again, when the money first comes into the marketplace, you don't see the inflation right away. It's only after it's been the, the inflation first time. takes time. So when they get the money initially, they're getting the full value of wow. the dollar when they spend it and invest it. It's only when it finally gets to you that you're getting oh, screwed. Oh, so when they're funding these ESG programs, this, the they're funding bank. at a hundred percent value. Yes. and then by the time that money gets to us, it's oh yeah, it's, it's, it's been inflated been away. Inflated yeah, yeah. Away. so they were able what? to buy, they, the were able, they were able to buy up assets. They were able to buy up property. They were able to buy up the stuff when the value was much higher than by the time it got to you. So, so here's the great part. Just explain the problem with money printer go burr with quantitative easing. So to Christian's point. What happens when all of a sudden the interest rates have to go up and you don't, you cannot have 
the same level of government spending. You cannot have the same amount of money that's initially going into all of these investment firms that's going into the stock market and everything else because people are offloading, people who know are offloading their cash assets as soon as fast as they can to put it all into the stock market. What happens all then? What happens is Bank of America stops uh, allocating a billion dollars here and there for all these DEI programs. That's exactly what happens, which is why uh, my the, if there's anything you can walk away from this episode with, it's that when the central bank prints money and lowers interest rates, when they do this easy credit, cheap money, you know, free you know, quantitative easing, basically, yeah. when, when they when they engage in extremely loose monetary policy and inflation, they are enabling. Policy. In fact, they're incentivizing companies like BlackRock and Bank of America and some of these other financial firms to basically you're, you're creating a bubble effect. And what are the signs of a bubble effect? Well, we're going to change the world <laughs> like it, it, oh, and we're also going to go buy a bunch of Teslas and make ourselves look rich in the process. But yeah. but people become a lot less scrupulous with how they spend money yeah. when it seems like there's an infinite amount of money flowing. Oh, yeah. When it seems like they, that you've discovered the infinite money glitch, suddenly you feel more comfortable. Oh, well, BlackRock manages $8.5 trillion you know, that, that they have in assets under management. Who cares if they're spending a couple billion here or there hey, on I'm ESG I'm still getting 12% return on yeah. my investment. But what happens when the money printers stop and the interest rates start rising and quantitative easing gives way to quantitative tightening, which is the first time, again, in, in almost a generation, certainly a generation on the investing side, that we've seen the end of easy money, the end of cheap credit, the end of the bubble that has been inflated since the 2008 crash when the Federal Reserve lowered interest rates to zero. And then yeah. when they couldn't lower them anymore, they started printing money in 2014. Yeah. And and we've seen the consequences of that in, in the form of inflation. And now the Fed is trapped. They can't do any, they, they have to raise interest rates. They have to shut off the money printer or else the entire middle class will be destroyed from inflation, which what's, what's that doing? That's restricting the amount of money in circulation, which eventually is going to lead to investors going to companies like BlackRock and being like, whoa, 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 whoa. We can't afford another billion dollars for this DEI initiative. You need to be giving me my return on investment yeah. that I gave. Yeah, what's this ESG crap you're doing? Like, this I, is, like yeah. I went from getting 12% to being negative. Like, you don't know, you don't get to spend any more of my money on your little projects. Like you actually have to produce a Posturing. return on investment. Yes, and in, in a, a tighter monetary environment. It is harder to produce a return on investment in a tighter monetary environment. And it's not just that. Look at the number of assets under management. So we, we talked about how BlackRock controls basically a third of the U.S. economy or the, the, equivalent, the equivalent size of yeah. a third of the U.S. economy. That's actually down. Yep. It peaked at $10 trillion in assets under management. It's now at 8.5. Mm. So it sounds like an insane number, but it's actually lower. And the reason why is because people are starting to pull their money out of BlackRock because the everything bubble that the Federal Reserve has been creating since 2008 is beginning to implode. And here's what's funny. The Federal Reserve under Jerome Powell, who we've been very critical of, has actually stood by his guns so far and said, no, we have to raise rates in order to get inflation under control. And, and he's stuck to it, right? The UN called on yeah. him to stop. The United Nations. <laughs> now, where did all of this start? When the beginning of this podcast, we were talking about what are ESGs, where did it start? This started as a creation of the United Nations. The United Nations knows exactly what is going to happen if all of a sudden the central bank starts saying, we have to get the inflation out of the economy. We've got to raise rates. They know what it happens to government spending. They know what happens to cheap money for investment firms. They know what it happens for all of it. And they know what it happens for ESG compliance. 
And so we, we are about to enter into an economy. And this, this is what happens when all of a sudden you take all the, the magical, you know, modern monetary theory out of the, and, and now we're faced with just reality. And here's the reality. Successful companies are the ones that produce goods and services that people are voluntarily willing to pay for. They are not the ones that engage in all these little pet projects by people like Klaus Schwab that think that they can run the world. And we are entering in, we are entering in a new thing and it's going to be painful initially, but if we learn the right lessons, it can actually be hugely beneficial for us going forward because we will once again reorient toward the whole idea of what free markets are all about is not government manipulation. It's not even about, you know, you know, these large corporate execs manipulating. What it's about is I have an idea. And I think that idea is going to provide goods and services to people that want them. I think it's going to address a need in the marketplace. And in the process of serving people, I'm going to be able to employ people. I'm going to be able to make my life better. We're going to be able to make shareholders' lives better because they want to invest in something that they think is valuable. And in that, in that process, the customers benefit, the employees benefit, the owner benefits, and the investors and the shareholders benefit. And you know who also benefits? All of these other people that they're claiming are stakeholders. Because we all benefit when the economy is going strong and people yeah. are producing things of value. Yes. Not subsidizing demand. Not which is subsidizing. <laughs> so the, the funniest part, I shouldn't say funny because it's not, but it, it's interesting. The very mechanism that they have used to prop up all of this, inflationary monetary policy, is what is going to lead to its eventual downfall. Wow. Because as Christian likes to say, <laughs> you can ignore economic reality. You cannot ignore the consequences of ignoring economic reality. It's even worse than that. You can ignore economic reality for 14 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but eventually, yeah. I mean, the funny thing is, is that inflation is going to be forcing the Fed's hand, as we just talked yeah. about. And, and what's incredible is, is that, as you said, it's central banks that in many ways enabled the creation of all of these woke capital policies that, that conservatives have complained about. Yeah. But the irony being is that once you pull that rug out from underneath it, 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 the amount of damage that higher interest rates and turning off the money printers is going to do to the ESG stuff is going to make what DeSantis has done and Abbott and some of these other Republican governors, it's going to make that look pale in comparison. Yeah. Like that is, that has been some serious political pushback. And in some ways I do sympathize with a lot of these Republican voters in some of these states that are, are saying like, I'm sorry, but our taxpayer dollars should not be subsidizing yeah. the implementation of policies that are going to be hurting us. Yeah. But those actions are nothing compared to the nuclear weapons that the federal reserve is, is in the process of unleashing yeah. on this ideology. Well, and if they follow through with it. Yeah. Well, and here, and here's the hope, right? Here, here's the, the ultimate argument for all of this. Yeah. Um, it, if you're someone that actually values individual liberty, private property rights, free markets, then, then the solution ultimately is not to give the government more control over the economy. The solution is to push back about what has created this problem in the first place. And the problem has not been created by politicians not being more involved in the economy. The problem has been caused by politicians manipulating the economy through regulation, taxes, um, through, through investment laws and regulations. And then it's also been, obviously there's other factors. There's things that have gone on within our schools, within our universities that have also pushed all of this. So we're not trying to overburden the argument on just one factor, but we are, we are going to enter into a phase where there is going to be a lot of pain. And, and the biggest concern that I have 
is the lesson that's going to be learned from this. And so what we've tried to do here today is, is lay out a path to show essentially the 120-year history that got us to where we're at right now. And if we can learn the right lessons, then again, the huge opportunity here, like the, the silver lining with all of this is that those companies which didn't buy into all this garbage and have focused on, on organizing and running their companies in the most effective and efficient way to use scarce resources in order to provide the things that make people's lives better. They're the ones that will come out on top and all the people that have relied on inflationary monetary policy and cozying up to the government and, and control rather than service, they will be the ones that fail. That's if we learn the right lesson. If we learn the wrong lesson, we'll give the government more control and they will go in and they will prop up all the companies that are doing what they want at the expense of all the companies that are doing what we want. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Obviously, a lot of complex issues here that yeah. we talked about today. But this is, again, this is something where Christian and I like nerd out about this. You want to see the geek side of us come out? This is it. But anyways, well, I want to thank you all for listening. Please let us know what you think in the comments section. Also consider joining our volley chat. We'll also have some links here in the description talking about some of the things that we discussed today. Um, and I also want to give a special shout out to a member of our volley chat who actually recommended this topic. And this is one of the things that's so good about volley. I'll do a quick plug here. Yeah. Um, not only were people able to come in and say, hey, it'd be interesting if you talked about this, but we actually got to have that interactive process where we got to come back and say, that's an interesting topic. What would you like us to cover? What are some of the specifics? And our audience is the one that said, hey, make sure you talk about James Lindsay. Hey, make sure you talk about you know how the, the, the mutual funds and whatnot are affecting this overall process. So I hope we did a good job for all of our listeners on volley and for all of our other listeners. Check out Volley. You might get to pick the next episode. I'm Nick Freitas. Thank you very much for joining us. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.